All right. Well, this morning, a little a break from the Unravel series. I am uh, actually going to dig into a little letter um, from the New Testament. Uh, when I say little, it is little. It is, it's the letter of Jude. Um, and as little as it may be, that is not an indication of it uh, being weak or being um, not very uh, relevant because it is a packed, power-packed little letter. And we're just going to take just a fly-by glance and look at it. Um, it, It's very short, but it's just packed full of stuff. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. I'm also going to have the scriptures on the screen. We're going to go through quite a few um, scriptures this morning, which I love to do. And uh, let me just give you a, a, just a little introduction um, to Jude. So basically, uh, as you have figured out, the author is Jude. Um, his name is Judas. They've shortened it to Jude for obvious reasons. And he is actually the um, known to be the, the brother of Jesus. Now, there's um, debate as to whether he's full brother, half brother, um, but most agree that he is a younger brother of Jesus. Uh, so as you know, Mary uh, was a virgin and had Jesus, and then uh, it is said that, they, that she had some other children. So we see glimpses of that in Scripture when um, passages in the Gospels, they talk about Jesus' mother and his brothers and sisters as well. So Jude identifies himself in the very beginning. We'll just uh, take a quick glance at that. Right here in, first, uh, in the first verse, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. I like how he didn't even want to, uh, I think it's kind of a form of humility. James did the same thing in his letter. He introduces himself uh, not as Jesus' brother, but as a servant of Jesus Christ. And Jude here also says, uh, introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, but also as the brother of James. And so we see there that um, there's that relationship there. And uh, if you look in Mark 6, 3 or Matthew 13, 55, you get a glimpse of the brothers there. We'll just look at the Matthew verse here. And it says, is not this, remember, these are the people who are questioning Jesus and who he is uh, proclaiming to be or acting to be and the authority he has and the things he's doing, and they're questioning this. And they say, is, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary, called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So Judas there being Jude. So that's... Uh, widely acknowledged that Jude is uh, a brother or half-brother of, um, of Jesus, uh, having the same mother. So who are the recipients uh, of this letter? Go back to the first verse, says Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So We don't know of a specific church to which he is writing. Um, It could have been a specific church. He doesn't specify it here. But what we do know as we look into this letter is it is applicable to um, any church of that day as well as us today and churches today, basically any follower of Christ. This letter is, is very relevant. So the purpose... What would be the purpose? And he says this very early on. We'll take a look at it here now in verses 3 and 4. Jude says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, 
Jesus Christ. Now, right from the beginning, he lets them know. I mean, obviously, he was planning on sending a letter of um, encouragement to talk about the, the salvation they share together. And for whatever reason, well, we know the reason, but he uh, has heard about some of the people who are creeping into the churches, and he changes his plan for what his letter is going to uh, contain, and he changes it to this letter of admonishment and warning for this church, um, which every shepherd should do. That's what shepherds are called to do, to to look out for the sheep, to uh, stand guard, to care for them, and also to look for those wolves in sheep's clothings in clothing, and that's what he's doing here. Um, if you're familiar with Peter's letters, Second Peter and Jude are very similar. Uh, it could be that uh, Peter took some from Jude, uh, the same tone and and some of the content. Jude may have taken from Second uh, Peter. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is obvious. Obviously, this was an issue. Of the, of the early church, and we're talking about the first, maybe second generation Christian, the New Testament church. This is very, very early on that this is already happening. So they take uh, action on this, not only Jude, um, but Peter, and of course, many of the New Testament writers are very, very um, clear on their warnings and their admonishments to, to make sure to keep uh, the flock safe, and this is one of those letters. Now, one thing I love about, and, and by the way, as we're going through this, this is so applicable for us today, especially. Uh, if you can imagine that these things were creeping into the church then, think about What's happening now? I mean, it's it's all they've always been around these uh, sheep's and wolves' clothing, these false teachers creeping in, teaching a false doctrine. But now, even more so, and it doesn't have to be necessarily in a local body of Christ. They can be doing it on YouTube, TikTok, whatever the social media, Facebook, whatever. They can be posting things, doing videos, and you see it all the time. Um, all kinds of doctrine being taught many claiming to be uh, the doctrine of God and Jesus Christ and teaching that. But as you know, if you've looked at uh, some of those, many of them are not the faith that was originally given to the saints, as Jude describes here. Well, one thing I I want to set uh, in the beginning is what I want to call the bookends to Jude's letter. This is this is really, uh, the, to me, the most uh, important and encouraging part of his letter, and it's the, at the very beginning, and it's at the very end. And so we'll look at them real quickly. At the very beginning, we see this. We've saw, seen this already, but I'll read it again. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called. Beloved in God the Father, and here it is, this is where I want you to hone in, uh, uh, tune into this, and kept for Jesus Christ. At the very beginning, he says to these people who he is addressing, those who are called, those who are beloved, those who are kept for Jesus Christ. And at the very end, in Jude uh, verses 24 and 25, very end of his letter, he says this, now to him talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who or God, the Father, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So here we have the, the bookends, one in the very beginning, he states it again at the very end, and that is that God is able to keep you. Now, I am 
the older I get, the more encouraged I become from this truth right here, that God is able to keep you. Now, I do want to point out that it does say that God is able. It does not say God is certain to keep you. I'm just pointing that out. It says that God is able. Now, there's an important part in this letter, and we're going to get to it, that uh, we need to be aware of. And, And when it comes to any kind of covenant, and that is what we have with our God in this new covenant, a covenant consists of two parties, and both parties have responsibilities. So we're going to look at some of that as we dig into this. Um, yeah, so let me dig in. So the admonishment he has in between these bookends, so to speak. Let's look at that stuff. So he, we've, we've seen already that he said, contend for the faith. He admonishes these believers to contend for the faith. He also says, and that's, this is the part we're going to get to, keep yourselves in the love of God. So the bookends we have says that God keeps, and God is able to keep. And in the middle, and this would be our part, it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And as I mentioned, any covenant involves requirements by both parties. This is our requirement that we keep ourselves in the love of God. And thirdly, he talks about help, helping others while showing them mercy. Helping others to um, contend for the faith and others to uh, keep themselves in the love of God. And so that's basically the the three main admonishments he has to say in this letter. So let's look at the first one. Contend for the faith. Contend for. So the original Greek word, remember this letter was written in Greek, and so it's been translated into English. So we've translated the Greek word to, to say contend for. But the Greek word is, uh, I always think I should not even try to say it, but um, the, the Greek is there on the left. The word in parentheses is, is, is kind of the um, transliteration, but I'm going to try it. Epikonazomai. Anyway, that's, that's a, I had it at one point in time, but then that was hours ago and I don't remember. <laughs> okay, so this Greek word is actually from two root words. Now, this interesting. This Greek word is, is only used once in the entire Bible, even in the uh, Septuagint, remember we've talked about that? So it's the Hebrew, the Old Testament written in Greek, very, very old. Even in that, uh, this word is not used. So this is the only place you'll find it. And what it is basically is Jude has taken two root words and put them together. Simply, the epi, that first is simply a uh, preposition. It's a directing the action. So the verb really is agonizing. Agonizomai. So that word there. Now you kind of recognize agonize out of that, and there's a lot of other words that probably come come from that. But that's the one I want to really focus in on. The first, the little preposition there is just directing it towards or against something or over something. So what does this this Greek word mean? If you look at the usage in Scripture, it will be uh, something like this. It's used in this way to enter a, a contest as in to contend in the gymnastic games. It can be to contend with adversaries or to fight. It could be to contend or struggle with difficulties and dangers. Or it can be used to endeavor with strenuous zeal or to strive. All of these are seen in Scripture this word, this Greek word being used, and so we're going to actually look at these because there's not that many. There's about eight. I'm just going to go through them real quick. So these are other scriptures. So when you're studying uh, a passage 
and you really want to dig in and do a word study, you we want to, of course, get to the original Greek or if Hebrew, if it's the Old Testament, and you want to get to that word, and then you want to see how is it used elsewhere in Scripture, because it helps give you balance of how that word and gives you clarity of how that word is used. So that's what we're going to do is we're going to look at every time it's used in Scripture. So there's about eight of these, so I'm going to go through them quickly. And I've underlined the English word where that Greek word, basically, that, that's the English translation for this Greek word that we're looking at. So the first one is Luke chapter 13, verse 24, where it says, strive, that's the word, that's the Greek word that we're looking at here, the contend for, or the, um, whatever that Greek word was, I wish I could say it. Um, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. I want to pause and I want to say something, because uh, uh, this is, as you go, as we go through this, and really as you read the entire Bible, I think it's important to, um, to know something. I heard a, a Bible teacher, scholar, he called himself, but talking about, uh, he used a word and I was very surprised at what he was saying, and basically he, he had two different word, two words that were uh, in opposition to each other. One was um, monergism, and the other one was uh, um, synergism. And basically, um, he was saying that synergism is, is false doctrine. Because synergism may, means that we have something to do in, in this relationship with God. And he was saying that monergism is, is basically the only truth. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I've read the Bible, and I can tell you that that is very, very inaccurate. So as we read Scripture, as you read Scripture... It's always good to pay attention to what does God do and then what does God require that we do or the people, the, the people in the Bible. You will see almost always God does require the people, his people, to do something. He doesn't do everything for us. So the, the concept of monergism is flawed just by simply doing a, a simple reading of Scripture, you see that that's not accurate. Synergism, why, while it may not be one of these 50-50 things, I don't think it is, but it, there's, no, there's no doubt that in Scripture you see that God has requirements for His people. There, there's a part that we play that we that we must do to uphold this, uh, our side of the covenant relationship. Now, in a covenant relationship, uh, I've talked about this when in teaching on covenants, in and in in when God does a covenant, there's, there's usually a stronger party in the covenant. There's usually a stronger nation going into covenant with uh, a smaller nation. The stronger nation is, is much stronger, and the, so therefore the stronger nation is the one making the terms of the covenant. The same exists with the covenants that God makes. He is the stronger one. He makes the terms of the covenant. We simply have to accept or decline, but we don't make the terms. He makes the terms. He is the stronger one. Uh, He will do the things that we cannot do, but there's always two parts to a covenant. So uh, to say that God only operates monergistically and that there's nothing that we can do to uh, take part in the covenant with him is just, is just not accurate. Uh, anyway, that was all a side note. But as we go through these, um, it's always good to look at things like this. Strive to enter through the narrow door. So you, you remember that Jesus is the one saying this. Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So let's look at the next one. John thirteen thirty six, 
Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would not have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So fighting is that Greek word that we're looking at here. Um, that's where it's used in that passage. Next one is 1 Corinthians 9.25. Paul says, every athlete exercises, there's that Greek word, um, exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, but we an imperishable. So again, we're looking at the Greek word behind contend, okay? And this is where it's used elsewhere. Uh, the next one, Colossians 1.29, for this I toil struggling with all, this ener- all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And then Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, that sound familiar? We went through, talked a lot about him when we went through Colossians. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling or contending on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. The next one is 1 Timothy 4.10. For to this end we toil and strive, there's the word, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The next one's 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight. There we go. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then lastly, um, 2 Timothy 4.7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And listen to this. I have kept the faith. There's that keeping. So it seems that Jude is calling Christians out of their uh, passivity and perhaps their ignorance about uh, these false teachers that are creeping into the church and about the, the false doctrine that they are beginning to spread. So he is calling attention to this. Now, let's look at what the false doctrine is, and he explains this next. And this is in Jude 1.4. He says this, For certain individuals whose condemnation, whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now, you'll probably recognize, probably sounds a little familiar. Paul would address this in Romans. He's addressed this um, a couple of times in Romans. When, those, when people say, basically, it's fine to sin and sometimes even good to sin because it then displays God's grace even more. And Paul is like, no, that is so wrong. And for those who say that that's what I teach, that nothing could be farther from the, from the truth. Paul was one who taught a lot on grace, but that was not the message. And this is, these are what these, these false teachers are doing. Are, they're taking this this idea, this uh, teaching of grace, this wonderful thing that we know of as grace, and they're twisting it to say that because of grace, it doesn't matter what we do. It matters not how we live our lives. It matters not how we might indulge our flesh or, or whatever we want to do. Because of grace, it doesn't matter. Now, this, was, this is not just a doctrine, a perverted doctrine from back in the early church days. No, this doctrine is, is going full force today. We see this all over the place, and it shows up in many different ways. But this, this doctrine is very much, I don't want to say well and alive because it's not well, but it's alive it is being taught, and we have to be very careful of this. And one way where this is really uh, coming into play 
is with the culture today, with the, um, the, the homosexual agenda, um, to be able to say that you can be a Christian and, and be homosexual and live a homosexual lifestyle and it's perfectly okay. And scripture is very clear about this, but the argument is God is a God of love. And God, who's a God of love, would never say that I can't live in the way that I want to live or enjoy uh, the things that I enjoy or uh, have the passions that I have. Um, because of grace, it, it's okay. And that's how it, it, it intertwines into these um, ungodly and uh, worldly uh, passions and things that we see car- being carried out in the world today. And it's, uh, it's those who want to believe it, they grasp hold of it very quickly. Now, it's not only for those who have I- evil desires. Sometimes it's just people who are living under a lot of uh, guilt and shame. They, they cling to this. But you know what? There's no need to do that. Because the blood of Jesus Christ is able to cleanse to the uttermost. His blood and his forgiveness is is beyond any other sacrifice that there's ever been. And when we come in repentance to the throne and ask, confessing our sins and asking for forgiveness, God will forgive because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that forgiveness and cleansing is thorough. It's complete. So there's no need to continue under that guilt and shame and cling to a teaching that is false and inaccurate in order to, have a, to, in order to feel better about yourself. We need to be cleansed completely, the right way, the only way that God has uh, allowed for us to be cleansed. So these people were, were they've, he refers to them as having crept in. They are now in the church. They are now taking part in activities. And um, I think it's in, maybe in Peter's letter, I can't remember who's, who refers to the love feasts that are going on, meaning, meaning the, they come and have a meal together, kind of like we do breaking bread, and sometimes they have communion together and everything, and, and these people are coming to those too. So these are people who are, who are coming in and they have a doctrine that is not the faith that was originally given to the saints. It is not the same faith. It is not the same gospel. It is not the same teaching of Jesus Christ and the apostles. The foundation had been laid, but already this early on is being perverted and twisted. Um, And that's, again, this is... This is really prevalent today. Um, it, it comes under all kinds of labels. Um, you've got the Universalists and uh, Unitarians. I mean, they believe everyone's going to be saved. doesn't matter who you, who you are, what you've done. There's nothing you do. The, the, what Jesus did then makes everyone included in on that uh, benefit. And... And then you've got those who um, say it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's just an acknowledgement about Jesus is the Lord, and then, boom, the grace extends to you. There's nothing more you can do. There's, there's, no, there's no turning away from your sin or, or, or repentance that's necessary. It's just, it's, so there's all, very, there's all kind of variations to this um, false teaching. So we have to be careful, as Jude is warning them about this as well. So Jude reminds them of, also he goes on to remind them of three historical events. And to, I think he's using this to kind of drive this home. And so in, in Jude, Jude 1, five he refers to um, the Exodus here. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, this is the great exodus, the the people of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt, 
And, you know, Moses came, told the Pharaoh, set the people free. You know the story. And God gave them instructions. You know, Pharaoh was stubborn, stubborn, stubborn. God brought plague, plague, plague. He still would not relent. Finally, God struck all the firstborns in the land and, and animals, everything, and gave his people very specific instructions on how to, to be passed over, how to be spared from the angel of death that was coming to smite all of the firstborns. And he was very specific, and we read about that. It's the first, um, it, it's where the Passover meal comes from. The Passover, meaning the angel of death, passed over those who had uh, the, sh- the, blood, the blood on the mantle, on the door, door frame. So he gave very specific instructions about the lamb or, you know, the, the lamb without blemish that was to be sacrificed and the blood was to be collected, not, uh, don't allow the blood to drip on the floor. You, you need to collect all the blood into a basin. But it doesn't stay there. You take the blood. You take a hyssop branch, dip it into the blood, and you put the blood on your doorframe. And that was the symbol. That was what was to um, allow for the angel of death to pass over and not kill the firstborn in that home. Very specific. And if they had, if they had killed the lamb and left it at that, they, they, they would not have been passed over. If they had killed the lamb, collected the blood, and left it in the basin, that would not have done it. Their firstborn would have died. They had to take the blood and apply it. And that's, a, that's such a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ as the lamb. In his blood that was shed, that we now have the opportunity to apply to every, every part of our lives. But we can't just acknowledge it and do nothing with it. We can't just acknowledge the blood and do nothing with it. We need to take the blood, the sacrifice, and begin applying it in our lives. He is the one who saves us from our sins. That's where we need to be applying the blood of Christ. That's a little side note, but that's, that's, what, the, that's what Judas uh, Jude is referring to here, talking about the, pass, the exodus out of Egypt. Now, what's incredible, sad to see is all of these People having come out of Egypt, I think it's estimated around two and a half million or something like that, having escaped Egypt, knowing God did this for them, knowing that he did all of these plagues, incredible signs and wonders that he performed leading up to this to try to get Pharaoh to let his people go, all of these incredible things that the people saw and no doubt acknowledged God is alive. God, our God, is real. I'm sure some of them saying he's back. And he was never gone to begin with, but he had his reasons for them being enslaved, and it's because of their... But anyway, that's, that's, that's what he was doing. So the people knew, the people believed, and the people were... Listen, they, they left, followed his instructions took the lamb, took the blood, did all that, left, and then they were faced with the Red Sea and all of the armies of Egypt, Pharaoh had changed his mind, were coming behind him and they're faced with the Red Sea. And we know what happened there. God split the Red Sea. They walked across it on dry land. The armies came behind them as they're going across. God let the water go and they all drowned and he wiped them out. Another incredible move of God in their midst that they saw with their own eyes. And to think that that God was so real to them, leading them at night with the pillar of fire, leading them during the day with the, with the cloud, and, and seeing how they, he was providing for them in every way. And then, as this says here, Jesus saved a people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. 
it's just, it's, it's incredible. But yet, we can be those same people. God can do something amazing. We know about all of these things that happened. The Bible is a book of history like no other. And these things have taken place. And they are often repeated in Scripture for our benefit. Yet, knowing that still, we can become the people who don't believe, who have unbelief. And really, unbelief is disobedience. So disobedience is unbelief. And that's exactly what it's referring to here when it says unbelief. Those who disobeyed God's commands. Therefore, they did not believe in him truly. And so that's one of the things he refers to. The next one is, uh, we'll look at in verse 6. And the angels who did not stay, this is Jude again talking, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. He also shares the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 7, he says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, if you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in um, Genesis you will see uh, what took place there. And not only was it uh, homosexuality, men wanting to have sex with other men, uh, but the violence, the uh, lack of uh, hospitality, just, there's, there's many things, but this was one of the things that even God, God sent his, his angels, and some uh, may say that Jesus was one of these, but there were three who came down to see if what the ground was crying out to God that was happening in these cities was actually true. And they came down to see for themselves. And the account is of Abraham pleading that they not destroy the city. And you remember, he's, he's kind of uh, uh, arguing and trying to talk God into not, these angels into not destroying the cities if, if there's some some uh, godly people there. And he starts with, you know, what if there's, you know, I can't remember the number, but like 50. And then he goes down to, well, what if there's 40? What if there's 30? He gets all the way down to, to, to 10. And these angels the whole time are saying, okay, yeah, if there's 50, we won't destroy it. If there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 10 godly people, then he will spare the city. And they go to check out this place, and you read about what happened, that the men of that city saw that these sojourners, these visitors, had come to Lot's house and had come in to stay with Lot. Lot welcomed them and knew they were from God. And the, the men of that city saw that new men had come, and they came to the door wanting to be let in because they wanted those men because they wanted to have sex with them. And that's, that's what the scripture says. And they began to violently, because Lot said, no, don't do this, and began to force their way in. And that's when the angels pulled Lot back in, pushed those guys out, struck them with blindness. And he told Lot, they, they told Lot and his family, we, God is going to destroy this place. Get out if you want to spare your lives. Get your children, your wife, your children, and go if you want to be spared. And... That's what happened. The son-in-laws thought he was joking, and they stayed. And they went down with the city. But Lot left with his wife and his daughters. And uh, you, you, you know that story. And Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities, the other cities that it mentions, were, were destroyed. Absolutely destroyed. Every life in those cities was gone, perished, destroyed. That was the judgment and God gave them so, um, so much time. And so this is the other uh, example that Jude is using here to kind of drive this home. He also describes them um, 
talking about these false teachers coming in, creeping into the church. He also describes them as um, walking in the way of Cain. And we know Cain was um, violent. He killed his brother Abel. He, he was um, he jealous. He, was, he had selfish ambition. Actually, all of these that he mentions here, the motivating factors behind what they had done was selfish ambition. The other was uh, Balaam. He says that these people walk in the way and the air of Balaam. Remember, Balaam's the one who the donkey spoke to Balaam to, to tell him, uh, to, to warn him. But Balaam ended up, who, Balaam knew God, was real, the God of the Israelites, but he was a mixture of things. You know, he was a mixture of this and that religion and stuff. And he was wanting, he was being hired by this, uh, this other nation to speak a curse over the people of Israel. They knew that this Balaam had powers. He, he tended, he, when he spoke things, things would happen. But Balaam knew that this is, uh, he can only speak what God allows him to speak. He knew that God was the God of these people, and he knew that he couldn't go against God, but he tried to speak curses over them, and God wouldn't let him. Uh, but his whole motivation was for money and gain, selfish ambition. So Jude says part of these people are doing this for gain. They're doing this for selfish ambition. They're teaching these things. They're coming in with these doctrines and, and persuading these people and influencing these people for their own selfish gain and ambition. And he says they're following and walking in the way of Balaam and his heir. And he also mentions Korah. If you remember, Korah is the one who rebelled against Moses because he was jealous of Moses and Aaron, the priest. Korah was a Levite. He He was set aside, as were the Levites, as God's priests to serve God in the holy places. And but that wasn't enough for Korah, and he wanted more, and he didn't think that Moses and Aaron needed to be the one to be in charge. So he gathered up his, his posse of people and came against Moses to say, why should you be in charge when God has set apart all of us uh, Levites? And he challenged him, and it did not go well for him. It did not go well for him and every person who sided with him. And you can read about that. Uh, judgment came on them, and they did not live either. They died because of it. And so uh, Jude uses this uh, Korah uh, incident as uh, a way of describing these people as well. So Judah goes on to speak uh, in his letter, goes on to speak of Enoch and the prophecy that Enoch, remember Enoch goes way back, the prophecy that Enoch gave of the Lord coming to execute judgment on ungodly people for their deeds of ungodliness and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He, he, he repeats that word, ungodliness, ungodly, several times. And we see this kind of thing. You know, this is the judgment that's to come. This is coming. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he's coming back as judge, not as savior. He's done that already. He's coming back as judge, and it's going to be a frightful sight. And you can read about it in Revelations, and some of the Gospels have mention of it as well. Uh, he's coming back as a Jesus that uh, you don't see in paintings today. Um, fire in his eyes, hair white. He's coming with a sword, and he is coming to bring judgment. And so this is, uh, this is Enoch's prophecy from way back then, prophesying that these judgments would come on ungodly people. It happened in Noah's day, and it's going to happen again, unfortunately, or fortunately. God's kingdom, eternal kingdom, is going to be a place of righteousness, and nothing unrighteous, unrighteous is going to be allowed in, according to him. And so, um, in, Jude, in Jude's closing remarks... He reminds his readers of what the apostles predicted. And this is uh, mentioned in Jude 17, chapter 1, verse 17 through 19. He says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time or last days, there will be scoffers. Now listen, think about today. Think about now. There will be scoffers 
following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. I had originally, as I was preparing for this message, had, because I've been seeing, you know, I've been in, reading the news lately and stuff with all the elections and all that stuff going on and all the stuff on abortion and all that. And, yeah, I just see horrific things that I just, you know, people, on what they put on these protesting signs and stuff like that, and especially the, th- the harsh things, the things that they say about God, you know. And I had, I was going to have some of those pictures, and I decided not to, I didn't, didn't even want to bring them into this place, but saying things like, God bless abortions. And uh, God, God loves, God's a God of pro-choice. One said, uh, I asked God, and she said she's pro-choice. I mean, just the, all these perverted things about God. And you see this, and, and this, is, this is what this is talking about. These people... They are very prevalent. You're seeing this. They're scoffers. They scoff at God. They scoff at things of holiness and godliness. They scoff at them. They follow their own ungodly passions. They cause divisions. They're worldly, and they are devoid of spirit, of the Spirit. And the thing is, some of these are proclaiming to be Christian. I, I read some just... I just can't believe that they get from this. How do you come up with that? I mean, the, but they are, they proclaim to be Christian and that God loves them and loves what they do and approves of them. And, and, and so they just, they're, they're totally twisting who God is. And we've got to be, part of being salt and light means that there are going to be times where we speak up and say what needs to be said. Where we say, no, that is not right. No, having a a drag queen reading stories to children in the library about picking whatever gender you want to be, and if you want to be a unicorn, you can be a unicorn. And, And no, no, that's twisted and ridiculous and evil, and wicked, and it's not right. But here's the thing. People who want to who maybe feel that way, or think that way, are being shut down. You and me. They're trying to shut people down from speaking up and saying, no, no. And you can feel it. You can sense it. It's already affecting God's people. It's affecting you and me. And we have to pay attention. Jude would say, you've got this creeping in. I'm not going to write to you about our common salvation because you've got this problem creeping in. Now listen, this doesn't mean we become these militant, you know, Christians who go out forcing our opinions on people. No. No. But it does not it does not mean that we become silent. That's not being salt and light. There are times where we have to say the hard thing and say no, that's not right. No, no, that is perverted. And the world is, man, the world is coming after people who want to try to say something like that. And so we've got to, we've got to make up our minds and, and be resolved in what we believe and what we're going to stand for. And because some of us may, maybe in our lifetime, maybe in our children's lifetime or grandchildren, but some of us will die for that, perhaps. Are we ready for that? I think we need to be. If they persecuted our master, how much more will they persecute us? But we've got to decide. 
Are we going to stand for truth? Or are we going to just go along with where the world is wanting to take us? So, it's depressing to read the news these days. In Jude's um, closing remarks, he admonishes um, them with the things that we mentioned earlier. And he says, one of the things that, and this is what we started with, we got the bookends, right? God keeps, God is able to keep, and in the middle it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then to help others to keep um, themselves there too. So just in, 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 I don't have much time, so I'm just going to say briefly, what does that mean, keep yourselves in the love of God? And I talked about a covenant already, and, and that there's always two parties to a covenant. Both have responsibilities. And, but how do we do this? How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Here's a quick, that answers this. I'm just going to answer it with scripture. Exodus, way back in the beginning, God giving his 10 commandments to Moses to give to the people. This is God laying it out. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. There's a lot more to this. I'm just honing in on this one part. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation listen to this, of those who hate me. But then here's the good part. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So how is this woven throughout scripture? Again, now in the New Testament, John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because I neither, it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And John fourteen twenty one, he says, whoever has my commandments, Jesus is saying, and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will, con- we will come to him and make our home with him. And John fifteen ten, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That is the answer to what does it mean to keep ourselves in God's love. And it's from the very beginning, God makes it clear. How to stay in his love is to keep his word, to keep his commands. If, if, and, and if, if we're not going to obey God, why even say we believe in him? It means nothing. To believe and, and then disobey, just, there's not, that's not belief. To believe, to have faith, is to be one who is faithful to God. It, it doesn't mean there's not room for error and mistakes and things that we need to confess and repent of and be cleansed from. But those to, to stay in God's love, to keep yourselves in God's love, means to obey what he says. And that's the, that's the answer to how do we keep ourselves there. So that's how we do that. But the great thing was the, was the bookends to this. God will keep. If we stay in God's love, he will keep us to the very end. He will make sure we are kept safe, secure, to then enter his kingdom for eternity. And that's, the, that's to me, the most exciting part of this whole letter or those, are those bookends. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to a close here, but 
The wonderful thing about this is that it doesn't depend upon our own power and our own strength. I, I've, I've realized the older I get, the, the more I'm crying out to God for him to help me. Is, is just that needs to be something that we just go to. No matter how bad we feel, guilty we feel, shame we feel, we've, we've got to go to God, let him clean us up, and tell him, I need your keeping power. I'm going to try to keep myself in your love, but I need your keeping power. God will honor a sincere and contrite heart who wants to do that and is trying, striving, contending, struggling. Scripture tells us, strive. Jesus says, strive to get through that narrow gate, to get on that difficult path. Fight. So we, we must do that. We must do our part. But the power and strength ultimately will be God coming from behind us and within us and giving us what we need to be able to be kept. He will keep us. As we are keeping ourselves in his love, he will keep us to the very end. He will make sure it is, it is finished. He will make sure that he makes us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. When it's all said and done, we will be welcomed into his kingdom because he is able to keep us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible uh, letter from Jude and uh, just the, the, the powerful words and reminders that it has for us, even especially uh, today. God, thank you that you have preserved this. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that we're able to see that, that faith that you gave to your saints from the very beginning. The gospel, the reality of you are a God who has offered a way back into your presence and you are a God who is able to keep those who have committed themselves into your hands. God, thank you for your keeping love and your keeping power. God, we need it more than ever. I need it. God, we need it. We need you. We need your spirit living in us, filling us, empowering us to to keep ourselves in your love and to remain unstained from this world. God, help us. And then help us, God, to, to do, and I, I didn't elaborate on this, but God, you make it clear, Jude makes it clear that we are to help others, those who are in doubt because of these false teachings. It says that we are to go to them with mercy, not with judgment, not with condemnation, but with mercy to help. It says that some are, are in the flames. They've already begun to turn and, and believe and receive these teachings. God, it says that we, sh we should try to snatch them out of the flames. But you say again, even to those who have already gone there, you say to to extend and try to help them, but with mercy. It says to, to, to hate even the garments of, of their sin. But we are to do it with mercy. And God, we need your help with that. God, we need to remember that we are no better than any of them. We need to remember that that could be me next. That could be me. That could have been me last week. God, we, we must remember that because you are a God who wants us to extend mercy, not judgment, mercy. So Father, help us to do that. Not, of course, not 
to compromise truth and righteousness and holiness, but to bring it in a, in a spirit of mercy, knowing that God has been merciful to us. God, may we extend mercy to those who are in need and help them in being careful and remembering that that could be us. God, we love you and we thank you for your mercy towards us. We thank you for uh, your great love. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the only way back to you. Thank you for making a way for us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I just feel led to say that um, if there's someone here that's praying for someone that they know, that if they died today, that they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, if that's you or if that's someone that you know, I just would ask you as we sing these last couple of songs that you just call upon the one who is mighty to save. I think the elephant in the room is that I'm pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> and David is an electrifier of fences. And I thank you for that, David. And the sad truth is that a clean, pretty world hasn't been made has not been made available to us. It was, and it was corrupted, and unfortunately, it's not able to be avoided. And wanting to avoid it is asking for a simulation, something that's not possible. So in my discomfort, I want God a shame if we look to church for a place to just affirm our preferences. If church was not an uncomfortable place, then what would we be learning here? So I just want to say with you, I am disturbed in my spirit. I hope you are too. If you're not, then... I'm by myself, but it causes me to fear the Lord and want Him so desperately and to long. For a time of peace and purity, it feels dangerous to come up close to the truths that He talked about today. But the truths are there no matter um, no matter what, no matter our desire to avoid them. Lord, we ask you for strength. And we thank you for the discomfort, Lord. That's the whole point. In our comfort, we've let things creep in. Call our eyes to look at the things that seek to destroy us. We know that we are in enemy territory and we need to be sober-minded and aware as much as we want to ignore it. Father, thank you for making us aware. Ow. But Lord, it wakes us up. So may we get to our knees, Lord, prepare for battle and not wish for something that is not available to us. The only peace and deliverance from the wickedness that has fallen on this world is in Christ and in heaven with you. That time is coming of pure bliss, of purity, true purity, and all the darkness and disgusting sorrows of this world will just be forgotten by comparison. 
cannot wait for when your glory fills every corner of every room, fills every every inch of everything, Lord, prevents the possibility of darkness. We understand, Lord, you created a world that had the possibility for darkness, and we, we really just lost no time rushing to that. And we acknowledge that this is not your end game. This is not your vision. This was not your vision. But Lord, you have made your vision clear. We, we so desperately want it. So help us stay awake. Keep our eyes on you, Lord. I thank you, Father, for the deliverance that many have received from the grips that this world has put into so many people, Lord. I've been ensnared. My friends have been ensnared. And it's through ignoring the true danger of this world that we just waltz into those traps. As young children, Lord. And we get angry thinking of how vicious the world is and how blatant they are in coming after our children. But God, they're coming coming ignoring it will not keep them away so Father we ask for the strength to bear and the conviction to do something about it it's so difficult (laughs) my kids are supposed to go roller skating today this message was so different than kids roller skating on a Sunday afternoon I'd be a fool to try to hold back the vile darkness of the world from them because it is coming and it will take them captive if I don't prepare them. Lord, please work through each of us to prepare ourselves, to prepare our children and to reach the lost. Tell them, Lord, with urgency and conviction that this is a true danger. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time... May God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart. of my